Santa baby, just slip a sable under the tree for me. Been an awful good girl, Santa baby. So hurry down the chimney. Santa baby. Hi. Hello. How are ya? Welcome back, my weird friends. How is everyone doing this fine Wednesday? I hope I'm not the only one who pronounces Wednesday that way. I have some exciting news I wanted to share with you. I now have two nieces born within six weeks of each other. I am absolutely in love with all these babies around and now two more girls in our family. Also, my oldest daughter turned seven last weekend. My firstborn, my sweet little girl, is growing into a little lady. It had me thinking while doing this series, I find myself laying awake at night so angry. This little girl lost her life. So young. The same age as my own daughter. This is a very clear answer why I do true crime. I want to bring awareness, no matter how small of a platform. I want to talk about these forgotten victims. Too often, in cases like these, they get so muffled with drama and... We all forget there is a victim at the core. And in this case, it's a little girl who had an entire life ahead of her. I've also been thinking about where JonBenet would be today if she would have gone on to be Miss Colorado or a doctor curing cancer or even a mother with her own children. She was robbed of her life, a life that no one had the right to take. This is episode three in the series of Who Killed? America's Little Beauty Queen. I will pick up right where we left off last week. I have a lot to cover, and I know you have been eager to hear about this Santa Claus visit to the Ramsey home just two days before the murder. The Ramseys were known to throw elaborate Christmas parties every year, equipped with extravagant decorations top to bottom. Patsy Ramsey even had a Christmas tree in each room of her home. As a fun treat for the kids, Santa Claus was on the guest list. Bill McReynolds was a man well-known around town, especially known for the community's Santa Claus. He appeared at parades and holiday events within the community, even had the perfect full white beard. Bill was who played Santa at the Ramsey's Christmas party in 1996, just two days prior to the murder. It was said that Santa and Jean Benet struck up quite the bond at the party. She even gave Santa a gift of his own, which you can imagine how tickled he must have been. Bill stated, every child is special to Santa. Jean Benet was no different. He was impressed how sweet and friendly she was, but a strange coincidence. Bill McReynolds had a daughter of his own that was kidnapped 22 years earlier. And an even stranger coincidence was it fell on the exact date, Christmas Day. Odd things started adding up. Bonnet supposedly gave Santa a tour of her home, showed him her room and all of her toys. Santa had written a note to Bonnet stating she had a surprise after Christmas awaiting her. 
And Bill's wife even wrote a play based on a little girl being kidnapped and murdered. Both Bill and his wife offered up DNA samples and whereabouts. DNA wasn't a match, and in spite of all the strange coincidences, police cleared Santa and his wife and had to move on pursuing other leads. Up until now, the Ramsey's official interview with police was still on hold, and the interview did not take place until April 30th of 1997. I'll save you the math, that's four months after the murder of their daughter. That's four months of potential rehearsal of a story, four months to practice potential questions they might be asked. The Boulder police dropped the ball big time with this. The interview should have been taken place immediately after the body was found. Mr. and Mrs. Ramsey should have been immediately separated and questioned. There should never have been an option to dance around a formal interview with police until four months later, especially in a murder that involves your own daughter. You can find small footage of the interviews on YouTube. I strongly recommend giving Patsy's interview a listen. This is when the real Patsy, in my opinion, was revealed. She was very poised, like a pageant queen would be, prepped with well-thought-out answers to every question. However, she was on the defense and not one tear was shed. Police wanted an exact timeline of the events leading from Christmas Day to the discovery of the body. The Ramseys stuck to the story. They got home from the Christmas party around 9.30. Jean-Benet fell asleep in the car and was carried to bed right away. That being the last time they would see their daughter alive. However, an interesting discovery in the autopsy argued that story. Jean-Benet had undigested pineapple found in her stomach meaning she ate the pineapple two hours before the time of death. The damning evidence on this is there was no pineapple served at the White's Christmas party. John Ramsey stated he carried John Bonnet right to bed once arriving home. She didn't stay awake to eat pineapple before bed. So how did the pineapple get in her stomach? Well, she ate it, right? So who served it to her? The intruder? Well, possibly, but how often do you serve pineapple before ultimately murdering someone in their own home with sleeping parents upstairs? Well, another piece of damning evidence is when the video footage of the Ramsey's crime scene was examined further, there on the dining room table sat a bowl of pineapple with a spoon. The bowl and spoon were ran for fingerprints and DNA. The only fingerprints recovered were a match to Mrs. Ramsey and Burke Ramsey. Burke Ramsey stuck to his story as well. He didn't remember eating pineapple or serving it to his sister that night. Patsy denied serving JonBenet the pineapple and couldn't explain how her fingerprints got there. Another thing I found interesting while listening to the Patsy interview with police is She told investigators she got home that night and gave them a description of where she laid her dirty clothes before getting into bed. Another interesting discovery on the crime scene video footage was a glance in the master bedroom. John Ramsey's side of the bed was the only side that looked to be touched. Patsy Ramsey's side of the bedding was still tucked in and looked as if she hadn't slept in it. The morning after Christmas, when... Patsy made her way down the stairs before finding the ransom note. She claimed 
she threw on the clothes from the day before. The same black pants and red sweater. Mind you, there were fibers of that red sweater found on JonBenet's body, but she was her mother, so that's not too uncommon. What gets me is a woman like Patsy, with the means to have a different outfit for each hour of the day, dressed in expensive clothing, it's hard for me to believe she threw on her old dirty clothes she wore all day the day before. So the only logical explanation for the clothes and the neat bedding is Patsy didn't go to bed that night. She didn't change her clothes. She never climbed into bed. And as much as she rehearsed her answers, as much as she believed she would be prepared for whatever investigators threw at her, she thought she thought of everything. Except this. Another year had passed, summer of 1988. Nothing new had come from the investigation. There was a lot of pressure on then-district attorney Alex Hunter to come up with some answers for the community. Besides the media and the community pressing for answers, the governor was also laying on the heat. Alex Hunter summoned a grand jury, two long years later. A grand jury of 12 jurors would be presented with evidence and given the ultimatum to choose to indict charges upon the Ramses. If you aren't familiar with what exactly a grand jury is, I will fill you in. I was actually summoned to a grand jury in a different county than I resided. I wasn't chosen to sit on the jury. I was actually eight weeks pregnant at the time and visibly sick and miserable with morning sickness. But anyways, a grand jury is separate from the courts. The courts do not preside over its functioning. The grand jury is able to subpoena evidence or any persons to testify. They review evidence presented to them, listen to sworn testimony, and their duty was to determine if there was enough evidence or probable cause to formally charge the Ramses. Under oath, a grand jury is never allowed to share any evidence presented or decision made within the court. I'll touch base on the grand jury decision later in the episode. I want to talk a little bit more about Brother Burke Ramsey. An inconsistency in the original statements from the Ramseys was that Burke was still asleep the morning of the 911 call. Remember, he wasn't woken up until John Ramsey went upstairs in a house full of chaos to awaken Burke and take him down the road to the neighbors. What most people aren't aware of is when you call 911, the call starts recording ahead of being connected to the operator. The woman who took Patsy's 911 call December 26th 1996, stated when they reviewed the phone recording, it was silent with mild discussion in the background, but once connected to the operator, the real frantic, dramatic show started. Patsy was hysterical. Following the conversation with the operator, Patsy Ramsey thought she had hung up with 911, but a few seconds kept recording. Police reviewed these few seconds before being disconnected, and they think they heard another voice. Not just any voice. As the 911 operator described it, the voice of a young boy. The recording went through extreme digital enhancement, and what was made out was this voice saying, what did you find? In my research, I also found some enhanced versions, not sure how credible, but was Patsy's voice made out saying, help me Jesus, a child's voice saying, please don't hurt me, and a male voice saying, why would you do that? If, in fact, that was Burke's voice on the 911 call, then that is a discrepancy in the story. 
Why wouldn't the Ramses admit Burke was awake? After all, there were only four people in the house, and one ended up dead. So this is what led to speculation swirling on Burke's involvement. There were theories Burke hit Jean Benet over the head, accidentally killing her, which led to a cover-up act to protect the only living child the Ramses had left. Burke Ramsey is now 32 years old. He didn't speak out about the case until the 20th anniversary of his sister's murder. He chose to do so on the Dr. Phil show. Normally, I stick up for Dr. Phil. Some may think he's a royal asshole. I typically like his opinions. However, when I watched these episodes, I was disappointed. In my opinion, I'd say the interview was very one-sided. Dr. Phil had his mind made up, the Ramses were innocent, and he would do or say whatever possible to corroborate the story. I think Burke's body language and weird smile while talking was uncomfortable to watch. He may have been anxious and uncomfortable talking about the specific matter, but Dr. Phil seemed to have an excuse or some kind of logical explanation for everything Burke did or said. Dr. Phil also sat down with John Ramsey and interviewed him as well. I was just really disappointed in the way the case was made out to be the Boulder Police Department's fault. They were out to get and convict the Ramseys and that the police weren't considering any other theory. Back to the grand jury, then-District Attorney Alex Hunter held a news conference to address the grand jury decision. This took place on October 14, 1999, swarmed and covered by media and reporters. The grand jury had spent the last 13 months listening to evidence and testimony, costing $2 million in investigation work. Alex Hunter took the stand and stated, quote, the grand jurors have done their work extraordinarily well, bringing to bear all their legal powers, life experiences, and shrewdness, yet I must report to you that I and my prosecution task force believe we do not have sufficient evidence to warrant the filing of charges against anyone who has been investigated at the present time. Never mentioned was the decision the grand jury had actually decided on, only nine of the 12 jurors would have been needed to agree on an indictment. This wasn't the answer or explanation everyone was hoping for. This further drove a wedge between the public and the justice system. I wanted to mention also something that took place 20 months into the investigation that I think is intriguing to this day. Remember the Whites, the close friends of the Ramses who hosted that Christmas party the night of Jean Benet's murder? and they were also present when the body was discovered? Well, Fleet White and his wife Priscilla wrote a 5,000-word open letter to the people of Colorado. This letter was intended to question the reliability of District Attorney Alex Hunter and the investigation in general. The letter reads, After Jean-Benet Ramsey was killed in Boulder nearly 20 months ago, her parents, John and Patsy Ramsey, immediately hired prominent Democrat criminal defense attorneys with the law firm of Haddon, Morgan, and Foreman. This firm and its partners have close professional, political, and personal ties to prosecutors. The Denver and Boulder legal and judicial communities, state legislators, and high-ranking members of Colorado government, including Governor Roy Romer. The investigation of her death has since been characterized by confusion and delays. While it is unlikely that the district attorney has been corrupted by Ramsey defense attorneys, 
it is certain that the district attorney and his prosecutors have been greatly influenced by their metro area district attorney advisors and by defense attorney's chummy persuasiveness and threats of reprisals for anyone daring to jeopardize the civil rights of their victim clients. Indeed, the district attorney and the Ramsey's attorneys have simultaneously rebuked the police for focusing their investigation on the Ramseys when, in fact, police were simply following evidence. Fleet then went on to list different alleged connections in the investigation that seemed suspicious. It was made clear Fleet believed the investigation was being delayed on purpose to serve, quote, the selfish interests of relatively small number of public servants and wealthy and powerful people. The Boulder police never made a comment on the open letter. Within six months of Jean Benet's death, Mr. and Mrs. Ramsey published a book telling their side of the story. It's named The Death of Innocence. I was tempted to read it. I still might, but I think I wouldn't be able to be as open-minded to read such trash. Former detective on the case Steve Thomas also came out with his own book, Inside the Ramsey Murder Investigation. His book is based on his theory and beliefs of how the parents are in fact responsible for this murder. Steve resigned from the case and the department and stated his reasonings were, quote, we have failed a little girl named Jean Benet. Former detective and the Ramseys came face to face on CNN, live for the nation to watch, and the three argue back and forth. The case turned into such a dramatic controversy. There is a little girl at the root who lost her life. The way everyone acted was very disheartening, considering the circumstances. In 2001, the Ramsey family relocated back to Atlanta, Georgia. The case seemed to run cold once again, but heated back up in 2006. After a 13-year battle with cancer on June 30th, 2006, Patsy Ramsey lost her battle to cancer. She was diagnosed with ovarian cancer and had gone into remission once before. The cancer reemerged and spread to her stomach and up to her brain, so she ultimately died from brain cancer. Many people had mixed feelings about her death. Some believed it came full circle and she got what she deserved. However, no one deserves to die. She still has never been fully convicted of this murder, so I would say she had to answer to God. Some felt this case will now never be solved. Patsy died and took her secrets to the grave. Until August 2006 came with a bombshell in the case. August 16, 2006, former teacher, 41-year-old John Mark Carr, was arrested and charged with the murder of Jean Benet Ramsey. The new DA in Boulder County, Mary Lacey, announced his arrest in the news conference. The arrest seemed to have come from left field, out of nowhere, shocked the entire nation. Carr was a school teacher from Bangkok, Thailand. In 2006, Carr had exchanged emails with a professor at University of Colorado named Michael Tracy. Michael Tracy had produced a documentary on the Ramsey murder case. Emails exchanged started to turn sinister and disturbing, so Michael reported Carr to the Boulder authorities. The Boulder police thought they had enough evidence in the emails, so they coordinated with Thai officials to arrange his arrest in Thailand. He was flown back to the States immediately to face his day in court. The media, press, public were all swarmed to see him step back on American soil. 
You can find Carr's full confession online. It's long and detailed with really uncomfortable things I'd prefer not to read. Carr claimed he loved Champenay and stated she died accidentally in a sex act between the two. He was clearly obsessed with Champenay and the murder case. He followed it closely so much his own family thought he was writing a book on the matter. His motive is still unclear. Ultimately, his confession never did check out. False confessions are so hard to understand. However, they happen, and more often than you'd think. Carr's DNA was not a match to the DNA recovered at the crime scene. He failed to offer details about the crime that were already released to the public. Carr's wife told authorities the couple spent Christmas of 1996 together in Alabama. It was impossible to place him in Colorado that night. Carr also had unrelated charges in Sonoma County, California for child pornography. Boulder authorities had to drop charges and release Carr to Sonoma County. There was just not any substantial evidence to tie Carr to the murder. October 2006, Carr was released for good. The child pornography charges were dropped, and he seemed to slip out of the public eye. Carr did reemerge in 2008, but as a transgender female by the name of Delia Alex Reach. Public records placed her in Seattle, Washington with a valid driver's license, so she is still in the States. That led to what seemed like a dead end. 2008 also came with some new technology that wasn't available in 1996. This new technology is known as touch DNA. Touch DNA requires a very little sample. Only six to seven cells are required to form a DNA profile. However, touch DNA has been criticized for high rates of false positives due to contamination. For example, touch DNA can be collected from as little as a fingerprint or handling of evidence from the crime scene investigator and that providing a false DNA profile found at the scene. DNA analysts were able to retest clothing from the crime scene Jean Bonnet was wearing the night of her murder. They were able to collect touch DNA from the inside of her pants and underwear, and it is an unknown male profile, not a match to the Ramsey family. DA Mary Lacey, the same district attorney who orchestrated the arrest of Carr, took it upon herself to publicly exonerate the entire Ramsey family based on this touch DNA evidence. Not only did she go on record exonerating the family, she also wrote a letter of apology. People who worked with Lacey remember her bringing John Ramsey into the Boulder County Prosecutor's Office Around the time she exonerated the family, quote, she wanted us all to shake hands with him. Here's a quote from the press conference from Mary Lacey herself. It is the responsibility of every prosecutor to seek justice. That responsibility includes seeking justice for people whose reputations and lives can be damaged irreplaceably by the lingering specter of suspicion. In a highly publicized case, the detrimental impact of publicity and suspicion on people's lives can be extreme. The suspicions about the Ramseys in this case created an ongoing living hell for the Ramsey family and their friends, which added to their suffering from the unexplained and devastating loss of Jean Benet. In her letter of apology to the Ramseys, she wrote, quote, We do not consider your immediate family 
to be under any suspicion. What makes me sick is the timing of the apology and exoneration. The letter was released July 2008, and Mary Lacey's term ended the following January 1st. So any negative effects or consequences for this would then be out of Mary Lacey's hands and concern. The public was angry and concerned this would negatively affect the case for years to come. Was there enough touch DNA available to fully exonerate the Ramses? It was unclear if this was enough to exonerate someone who has been the center of suspicion on the case for over a decade, let alone offer up an apology to the family. Tom Kelly was a press lawyer, and he stated his disappointments in the exoneration letter and apology. He stated his knowledge and experience with touch DNA is just not reliable to support such a huge decision, such as the one Mary Lacey took upon herself to exonerate and apologize to major suspects in the case. If, in fact, technology continues to develop, new evidence emerges, or old evidence is retested and, in fact, comes back to prove the guilt of the Ramseys, how will a case be taken to trial when there is now a DA on record exonerating and offering up an apology? Any future criminal case will now be very hard to prove. So just like that, after dozens of years under the microscope, the Ramseys are cleared and walk free, free of all of the remaining evidence, inconsistencies, and suspicions leaning towards their involvement. But wait... There's more. In 2013, a local news reporter gets a tip, and it's a big one. This reporter, Charlie Brennan, finds out the grand jury decision back in 1999. The grand jury of 12 jurors 14 years earlier had, in fact, voted to indict criminal charges on John and Patsy Ramsey. The public wanted proof. They wanted answers. So in order for Charlie Brennan to gain access to such records, he would have to sue the district attorney's office. To everyone's surprise, he won. The court then unsealed written proof of the grand jury's final vote and charges. One of the charges the jury decided on was child abuse resulting in death. So this contradicts what then-DA Alex Hunter led the public to believe. Alex Hunter knew the grand jury decision and he chose to not pursue the charges and publicly announced himself and his team did not have sufficient evidence to charge anyone in the case at that time. This exploded. As you can imagine, the community and nation were confused and very disappointed in Alex Hunter for not being directly honest. Only four pages of some 18 pages were released by the judge. To Charlie Brennan. The pages released were signed documents by the grand jury listing charges. So what was on the remaining 14 pages not released? What else don't we know? And we'll likely never know. What were the jury's reasonings behind these charges? What evidence was presented to them to lead them to this decision after 13 months of deliberation? Unfortunately, we may never get those answers or anytime soon. The colder the case gets, the colder the trail gets. This case has become the mother of all cold cases. Patsy Ramsey was buried next to Jean Benet in Atlanta, and her own words, quote, 
God knows who you are. Whatever secret she took to the grave, she ultimately had to answer to God. Chambonnet would be 30 now. The cold, hard reality, aside from the dramatic case, is that she is gone. There may never be justice for this little girl's life, taken entirely too soon. That's a wrap for the Champagnat series. I really hope you enjoyed this series as much as I did covering it. I will be absent for the next two Wednesdays. The holidays are meant to be enjoyed and spent with family and loved ones. I want to wish you all a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. I have big goals and plans for this podcast come 2020. I want to thank everyone who has listened and supported my podcast along the way. I couldn't be happier with the success and positive feedback I've gotten. I had a very humbling experience the other day. A listener, Ashlyn, expressed her desire to meet me. She listens to me, she enjoys my podcast, and I just wanted to give her a huge shout out. So Ashlyn, if you were listening, yes, I will be so happy to meet you or even take you to lunch. Thank you so much for your support and thank you so much for listening. If you like the series, if you like my content, I kindly ask you to share with a friend. Share my Facebook or Instagram, copy and paste a link to one of my episodes. That is the best form of support I could ask of you. Thank you for listening. Until next time, Merry Christmas and stay weird, my friends. Oh, and one more thing. Hi, mom. Hi, mom.